Hello, everybody. Welcome to Coffee Time. I am your host, Byron. This is episode number 96. I'm itching closer to that 100 mark. I don't know who I'm going to have yet, but hey, 100 is a a landmark for me. Anywho, we are live right now on YouTube at Coffee Time with Byron. Also available next day on all podcasting apps, Google, Spotify, Apple, you name it. And now if you have Alexa, you can put on Amazon Music that we are there too. But alongside me is former NFL player and radio personality, Chad Brown. How are you tonight? Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, happy to be here. I'm doing really well, man. Yeah, looking forward to this. So what was cut to the chase right right ahead? I see you were drafted out of Colorado in 93, round two, pick number 44. Now, I don't know how the draft process worked because I was only two years old in the 90s. Take us through that draft process. Is it the same as today? Did you know you were going to go that uh, that low in a draft, or did you, or did you expect to go like maybe first round? Well, you know, it was uh, one of those situations where there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, I think the draft process is fairly similar from the uh, from the player standpoint as it was uh, then as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got an idea of the teams that are interested. You've got an idea of kind of where you'll be going, but there's a you know there's some wiggle room in that. Um, so, uh, you know, San Francisco was looking for a pass rusher. And um, so those possible they were looking at, at me. I know I was in that conversation. Uh, I met with San Francisco at the combine and uh, my agent spoke to them several times. In the end, it was the, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers who ended up uh, moving in the draft, trading up to a couple of picks to get me with that 44th pick in the draft. Um, and. Uh, hindsight always being 2020, uh, it was the exact perfect situation for me to land into. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed my time in Pittsburgh. Um, I learned a lot and to get a, a chance to play with guys like Greg Lloyd and Kevin Green and Rod Woodson and, and players like that on that defense and to be coached by some of the you know the greatest coaches in the NFL. Um, it was really the perfect landing spot for me. Yeah, wasn't I? Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure because I was still too young. But were you coached by Cower at that time, or was it um, a different coach? Uh, Bill Cower was the head coach. He followed up Chuck Knoll. Uh, Bill Cower was in his second year. Uh, but we also had uh, Dick LeBeau, you know, now a yep. Hall of Famer. Yep. He was de- defensive backs coach, became defensive coordinator mm-hmm. uh, my last two years. Marvin Lewis was my linebacker coach, longtime Cincinnati Bengals coach. Mm-hmm. My first two years, Dom Capers was the defensive coordinator. Um, heck, Dom is still at it today. He's a defensive consultant out here in Denver for the uh, Denver Broncos. Mm-hmm. So a really great staff, great players. Um, like I said, it's hard to imagine me landing in a better spot uh, to get a, a better experience than what I had there. So your time in Pittsburgh, before we get to your uh, – because I saw you, not many players, I before I get to your college career, because I see not many f- players get to spend their four years in college like you did. But before I ask you about that, your time in Pittsburgh, like you said, you had a who's who of names and coaching. What do you think went on in the early 90s and why you guys couldn't win the Super Bowl? Because I know there were powerhouse teams, but you were you guys were considered one of those powerhouse teams. So what what happened there? Well, all four years, we made the playoffs, made it to the Super Bowl. Uh, played in another championship game. Um, so we were definitely in the hunt every single year. Uh, the Cowboys were really good. 
you know, they had the uh, the triplets on offense, right. Michael Irvin, Emmett Smith, uh, Troy Aikman. Um, we certainly had a, uh, a really good defense. Um, but in the end, um, you know, that offensive firepower was too much for us in that Super Bowl. We had a couple of turnovers on offense that we couldn't overcome. Uh, we lost that championship game by uh, a fluky uh, touchdown to the San Diego Chargers. We ended up getting blown out by the San Francisco 49ers in that Super Bowl. I believe we would have gave the 49ers a much tougher contest oh, yeah. than the Chargers were able to give them. Uh, the Chargers got a lucky play late in the game against us. Um, so we were close. We were in the hunt. Um, but in the end, I just don't think we had enough consistent offensive firepower. The defense was always in the top three defensively. Uh, but the offensive production, particularly in the in the passing game, sometimes left a little uh, to be desired. Trust me, even though I was young, I do remember that seeing highlights of that game because I'm a Charger fan and I was terribly disappointed. Yeah, it looked like they did not belong in that damn Super Bowl. Right. They got there. I was yeah. devastated for them. <laughs> so let's get on to, uh, like you said, like I said, uh, not many players get to spend their four years in college like you did or use that eligibility especially nowadays where they're all going two, three years, depending on how good they are. You managed to stay all four years. Take us through your uh, college experience. Uh, what games leading up to your big-time draft and eligibility do you remember in your college career that helped you prepare for the NFL? Uh, I was part of a, an amazing uh, time uh, with the Colorado Buffaloes. Uh, we won a national championship, played in two national championship games. Um, we were really good, and the talent was amazing. So just to be on the practice field with those guys, um, you were going against NFL talent every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that I was there for not just four years, five years, I registered my freshman year and then played for four years, I needed to physically develop Um Quite a bit. I came in. I was, you know, very thin and small and light, um, and uh, I've never been a guy who was in- incredibly strong in the weight room. So those years at Colorado were, were critical for my my physical development, um, and, and I needed that time to to be able to keep myself, uh, I suppose, healthy once I got to the NFL, and also to be able to play at a high level. Just the NFL games, a bunch of grown men, and at that point, you know, I quite hadn't developed that man body just yet. Now, tell me about when you do when you do get to Pittsburgh, you get drafted, like you said, you talked about how you went to those Super Bowls, you went to the playoffs, all of them years you were there. How did you guys get the name um, Blitzburg? Was that before you arrived or was that when you arrived that you had that name Blitzburg? Uh, I think Blitzburg was part of uh, my time there. Uh, I don't think it was, you know introduced before that um dom capers and bill cower and dick lebeau they put their minds together and develop that zone blitz defense so often when you want to go with a blitz you know your secondary is asked to be in man coverage and if that blitz doesn't get to the quarterback now you got guys in the secondary chasing receivers around in man coverage so they came up with the idea to have the blitz front but also with the zone coverage behind it. So that's where that Blitzburg scheme came from because so often teams only want to employ the Blitz when, you know, in very critical situations. We were comfortable doing it at all times uh, because we felt very comfortable with that zone coverage behind it. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, it was, the term was Blitzburg, a lot of times it wasn't 
bringing an extra guy. So often we talk about blitzes, that's bringing five guys or six guys in a rush. We would bring four guys, but the offense really had no idea which four guys would be coming. They would bring Rod Woodson, line up at nickel corner, uh, nickel cornerback off the edge. I was playing inside linebacker, and I would blitz. So there was always a number of very creative schemes to get to the quarterback that were really trying to lessen the exposure of our defense once we got into that blitz attitude. And once we got an offense off balance and the quarterback uncertain as to where the blitzes was coming from, then we got them right into our hands. And then we could really call all the blitzes in our package for that game and begin to really make that life, uh, life of that quarterback very uncomfortable. So then you mi- I see you missed the 96 due to injury. Um, it doesn't tell me what exactly you had, but were you out for that whole entire year? Like what happened there? What, what, what did you think your career was, uh, you think that was going to affect your career, that injury, or did you not care about that injury and you think you were going to continue on like nothing happened? <laughs> um, so I, I got injured game four. Uh, the first three games of the season, I was leading the league in sacks. I had five and a half sacks in the first three games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was off to a great start. Uh, I ended up getting a high ankle sprain. And at that time, uh, you know, folks weren't super familiar with what high ankle sprains were and the treatment was not as uh, dialed in as it is now. So it took a long time to recover from that injury. Um, I actually tried to play on it for a while. I just you know, really couldn't be very effective. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until the playoffs came around that I was actually healthy enough to play. Uh, but even in that Super Bowl that year, I was still uh, you know, slowed down a bit from that injury. Um, in the offseason healed, and you know, I, I was able to you know, resume my previous level of, of comfort on the field and previous level of athleticism. But certainly that 96 season, uh, I was slowed down quite a bit. Actually, it was a 95 season without a high ankle sprain. Sorry. So the following year after that 96 season, you go and spend most of your career with the Seattle Seahawks Seahawks starting in 97, where the likes of um, Warren Moon, uh, Steve Hutchinson, guys like that. Uh, Tell us about your time in Seattle. Um, I think you guys had a few playoff appearances somewhere around there. Uh, take us through your time in Seattle and how, how well did you enjoy that compared to your time in Pittsburgh? Uh, Seattle was there for eight years. Uh, made the playoffs three times. Uh, lost in the first round all three times. The year after I left was the year they went to the Super Bowl and lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, uh, it's a, you know, a little a bit of an unfulfilling experience. You know, I went there to bring uh, championship football to Seattle. You know, I felt like my experience in high school, my experience at the University of Colorado winning a national championship, my experience in Pittsburgh, you know, being in the playoffs all four years and playing in the Super Bowl, that I could kind of bring some of those winning ways to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, it was difficult to kind of change the, the, the culture out there. My first two years were with Dennis Erickson. Then Mike Holmgren came in after that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mike went with Dennis Erickson's players the first year. Then he kind of cleaned, cleaned house a little bit and had to rebuild things again. So it took some time to bring some consistent winning ways to Seattle. Um, I like to think I was a part of building that organization and that team to where it got to. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I didn't get a chance to you know participate in that playoff run, that Super Bowl run the year after I left. Well, you you ended up in your time there. You ended up making two two more Pro Bowls. So now, before I get on to your next team, the Patriots, was after you signed for uh, after you left Seattle. Uh, Tell us a little about the Pro Bowl experience 
uh, I mean, to me, I know it's an all-star thing, et cetera, et cetera, but to me, I think they need to have it like, I want to say like, you know how the other sports do it like halfway in? I think they need to do that. Like, it's like an all-star feature of talent. I don't, I don't like how they do it like before. Well, now it's after the Super Bowl, but it was before the Super Bowl. And I, I don't like how they do that. Do you think they need to change the Pro Bowl format? I'm not sure if there's a way to change the format enough to make it compelling for the players. Players at this point make so much money um, compared to what you make for the Pro Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, when I played, players actually put in some pretty good effort, and the games got a little competitive. They weren't always super physical. That's what the Shannon game got Sharp competitive. Said, yeah, Shannon, Shannon Sharp said the same thing that you're saying. Yeah, because he was he was disappointed in how this year's was. Nobody was playing defense at all. <laughs> right. I mean, it's now it's two hand touch. No one even goes to the ground anymore. Yeah. Um, these, these players. So the situation has changed so much. I'm not sure if, they, if there's a possible way to motivate these players to play all-out, an all-out football game in a game that doesn't count, in a game that you don't get paid your regular salary for. Most of the guys who are in the Pro Bowl, you know, are making at least a half a million bucks, if not a million bucks per game. Right. What do they pay you for the Pro Bowl? Seventy-five grand. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it, it just doesn't compare. So, therefore, no one's willing to put in the effort. No one's willing to risk injury. Um, so, what, it, what ends up happening is the NFL has this awful product but you know fortunately the football public is so football starved particularly mm-hmm. at that time of the year yeah. that they'll watch it it'll be the highest rated sports program of the weekend even though it's barely even resembles what we would all think of as football um i enjoyed my pro bowls experience i played hard um i wanted to win the winning team gets double the losing team. Right. Um, I, I didn't make a, you know that amount of money where that wasn't a concern for me. I, I had to pay for all those people I brought to Hawaii. You know, each time you sit, each time you sit down and eat, it's a hundred bucks, and you bring six or seven people, it's like a thousand bucks every time somebody wants to eat something. So um, that's double payment for being the winning team was important. So the second half of all three of the Pro Bowls I was in, hey fellas, let's get ready to play and go out there and win this game. Now, did you ever, I know they have the skills competition. Did you ever participate in any of those skills? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm so old. I am before they even had skills competitions. Oh, <laughs> that's right. They didn't have them back then, did they? No, yeah. they didn't. That's a new oh, thing. That's right. I forgot. They, did, they didn't start those till like the early 2000s, correct? Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. That Life can sense. be complicated sometimes. Your streaming should so then, let's see, after the Seahawks, like I said, you signed with the Patriots when Teddy Bruschi goes down to injury in 05. Tell us about that experience and playing with what people say, the GOAT. I don't, I don't, I think there's others, but it just depends on error. And you play with uh, Bill Belichick. What was that experience like? Uh, the Patriots experience was, was awesome. It really was. You know, it's a, it's perhaps the most intense football environment i've ever been a part of um i learned so much in my time there about some of the small details of football Mm -hmm. Um, bill belichick is clearly an amazing teacher of the game um with a guy like tom brady who's you know leading that team who's one of the hardest workers i've ever been around the standard was set for effort for work ethic for preparation Mm -hmm. um 
it was really just an amazing football experience. Um, I, I wish I could have contributed more uh, on the field. I ended up being a, a role player as the season went along. I started those first six games of the season. Then Teddy came back, and instead Teddy was a starter after that. Um, so I, I kind of shifted from different roles from week to week. Um, always was part of the game plan, but you know had a, a varying role. Um, like I said, I enjoyed my, my, my time there. It was an awesome football experience to get a chance to you know, play with Mike Vrabel and Teddy Bruschi and Tom Brady. And then in year 15 in uh, New England, to be able to play with Junior Seau and, and guys like that. Um, an amazing football experience. Uh, I loved it. I wish I could have gone there earlier in my career when I still would have been a, you know, a starter kind of thing. But uh, I, even as a role player, I felt a very uh, football fulfilled by my time there. Now, I see during that 06 season, you were on injured reserve and then you were released by them. Did you think they were going to pick you up again the following year like they did? Uh, so, well, you know, um, in 06, so I went to camp with New England. Uh, I broke my hand the very first day of pads. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, they ended up putting me on the injured list. Um, I ended up being released at the end of training camp. They were going to bring me back once my hand was healthy during the season. Um, I end up getting a call from Bill Cower, who says, I need you to play linebacker for me. Mm-hmm. We had two linebackers pull hamstrings today. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you play? So I go up to Pittsburgh and I finish the season out in Pittsburgh. Um, and as you said, end up coming back to New England for year 15. So I knew they had a role for me in New England. If I was going to be available, Bill Belichick was going to put me in a certain role, a certain position where he thought I could be successful at it. Yeah, because it says right here you went, uh, you took the spot of you were signed by them, and then you took the spot of Roosevelt Colvin, uh, that year, um, and but you guys at least go to the Super Bowl, and you, and I believe that was the one. Unfortunately, you guys didn't win because I believe that was the first Eli Super Bowl, correct? So that was the perfect season that yeah. didn't end so yeah. perfectly. Yep. So that was Randy Moss and Wes Welker and and, and a high flying offense. Yep. Um, yeah. So I've played. I've been on two Super Bowl teams. Uh, unfortunately, been on the losing end both times. Um, still kind of stings. Uh, I was able to win a, a Pop Warner Super Bowl with a team I coached once I retired. So I got one Super Bowl victory under my belt. Um, <laughs> but those other two, they still hurt. I bet. I bet. Now. I don't know if you can tell you this now that you're retired, but I'm kind of curious. You lived you lived it for those couple years there. Uh, tell us about the Patriot Way. What what exactly is that? And I mean, obviously it's successful, but do players? You were in that locker room. Do they like it? That whole Patriot Way where they can't be themselves. Um, I, I, it's not for every player. You know that situation there. Um, certainly, guys have you know gone there and you know realized it wasn't for them and you know either asked to get out or the coaches get them out um so you've got to buy in completely to be there um so guys like teddy bruski who were completely bought in guys mm-hmm. guys like tom brady were always the example um everybody is you know on an evil, even playing field here. Tom Brady is not special and off to the side. Tom Brady is going to get yelled at by Bill Belichick, just like everybody else. The demands uh, and the accountability of that situation. Um, Every day in the team meeting, Bill is going to ask somebody some questions. So you bets be prepared for these questions. And it could be, you know, hey, Chad, 
you're on kickoff return this week. Yes, I am, coach. Who, who's the guy you're responsible for? Mm-hmm. When we go left return, I got R2. When we go uh, right return, I got L5. Tell me about L5. He's number 48, coach. He went to college at Cal. He's a guy who's going to try to try to make me miss. Okay, what about when we do the other return? It's 58. He's a linebacker, coach. He's going to try to run me over. So you have to be able to talk about your job. You have to be able to retain the information, and you have to be able to give the coaches confidence that you can go out there and do it. The Patriots are, and Bill Belichick, are infamous for some weeks, some guys just don't play. In other weeks, that, that, that other guy, that guy may start one week. He may not play at all the next week. Mm-hmm. So if Bill doesn't feel you're right for that particular matchup with the team, he doesn't feel like your practice effort and your attention in the meetings has prepared you to play, he's got no problem sitting you down. So your role changes on a week-to-week basis unless you're really one of the true starters out there. So it's a, it's a, it's a tougher journey than most other teams I've been around because of that sense of uncertainty. Um I liked it because once I was no longer the starter and Teddy Bruschi was the starter, I knew I was going to have a job every single week. I was going to have a role to play. Um, Other guys, it was difficult for them to accept their role. Um, Some guys like myself, you know, we just kind of bought into it. Um, If you wanted to keep playing football and keep playing football on that team, you had to find a way to buy into your role. So that Bill Belichick phrase of do your job is literally, you know, what the Patriot way is about. Your job may change. You still got to go out there and do it. Is this a job you love? Well, maybe not. You still got to go out there and do your job. And if we all do our jobs, we'll be successful. So often the Patriots don't go out and out-athlete people, don't out-spectacular play people. They just get everybody who's dressed for the game to do their jobs and do them at a pretty high level. And if they do that and they allow the other team just simply to make mistakes – you can find a way to win lots of ball games by just letting the other team screw up. And if you don't screw up, right. so you don't have to do anything spectacular. Just do your job. Now, you're, obviously, it was your final year and your final game that was that Super Bowl where you guys lost, unfortunately. Uh, did you know? Did you know right then and there you were going to retire after that year? Uh, take us through that. Your final game in the NFL. Did you know it was going to be your last? Well, you know, I started feeling like I was playing on skates that last year. You know, um, the lower body injuries. I had a lot of ankle sprains, which, which we talked about one. Right. I had some foot issues as well over my right. career. So, I mean, by the time you get to year 15, things are starting to wear down. And I felt like I was playing on skates. So, in my mind, I was thinking this was probably going to be my last season. Um, after the season, I got calls from a couple of teams who were interested in me for year 16. Um, I thought, I thought, you know, the chances of me getting injured in a serious way, which I've managed to avoid most of my career, mm-hmm. um, with me feeling like I was on skates and my footing was uncertain out there, it was probably time for me to walk away. Um, you know, by the time the season rolls around, every former player thinks, oh, I can still do it one more year. I can, I can still do it. Um, but I was pretty secure by that point. And, you know, I think I'm done. 15 years is a long time in the NFL. I think I squeezed pretty much every drop of juice out of this orange as I possibly could. Time to move on to the rest of my life. Now, what would you say every player has their welcome to their sport moment, as I've interviewed before? What would you say was your official welcome to the NFL moment? Uh, let me think. Okay. 
we were doing linebacker drills in my first training camp uh, with the Steelers. Mm-hmm. And I'm paired up with Greg Lloyd. Uh, and at that time, Greg Lloyd was literally the baddest man in football. Mm-hmm. A 10th degree Taekwondo uh, black belt. Um, pro Bowl, all pro, some people's defensive player of the year. Literally, just a, just a an amazing, amazing football player. And we were doing some drill, and uh, I wasn't going hard enough for Greg's liking. So the very next rep, uh, he blasted me, put me on my back, knocked my helmet off, my chin strap went, went flying. It may have been the hardest I was hit my entire rookie year. And I was in, in practice doing a drill with my other linebackers. And I was on the ground, and Greg looked over me and pointed at me. We come to practice, rookie. We come to practice every day. Okay? I got lesson learned. We will not have to repeat this lesson ever again. So, um, you know, come to find out if you practice hard, you tend to play hard. Yeah. Um, and so that was a huge lesson for me um, early in my career. And the Steelers, certainly defensively, we prided ourselves on how hard we played. Right. So to get that lesson in that first training camp um, really was uh, instructive for the rest of my career because after that, I always tried to be one of the hardest working guys in practice because I knew that you just can't flip a switch on on game day to suddenly turn it up. If you practice hard, you play hard, you play hard, not only do you play well, but you tend to stay safe because you're playing harder than everyone else. Now, now that you mentioned that story, because I, I like that story, and did you – did you uh, have to do that since you since you learned from that instant later on in your career? Did you have to do that to any other rookies that you met in practice? Uh, I wasn't quite as uh, mean <laughs> as, as Greg was. I was more of a guy to have some conversations with you, you know, uh, on the field or in the locker room. I wasn't going to knock your helmet <laughs> off. I wasn't going to do that. But hey, man, this is the NFL. If you want to stick around here. You're, Heck, if you want to just keep yourself safe, you got to find a way to turn it up, man. Because yeah. you can't, you cannot stay safe in this sport playing halfway. You can't keep your job playing halfway. Yeah, very true. So obviously, you spent the most time in Seattle. Uh, obviously, I don't know much. I don't see much of their games. I don't know about the crowd, the fan base, the twelfth man, as they say. You were in that when they were in their losing years. You also went in with their sort of winning years before they went to the Super Bowl. How is that crowd like? Are they really as loud as they say they are? Is they are they really what they say they are? Like the twelfth man? They are. They absolutely are. So, in eight years, I played in three different stadiums in Seattle. We played in the Kingdome, but now it was demolished, and we went right. to the University of Washington right. and played there for yep. two years, and then we moved into where they, the Seahawks yeah, play now. now. Yeah. Um, the Kingdome, as you would guess, a dome stadium. <clears throat> excuse me, was incredibly loud incredibly loud the 12th man was always a part of that at husky stadium where the university of washington plays it just because of the you know situation being outside uh the stands were separated from the field by a running track um so not quite as loud of an environment but once we moved into the new stadium that stadium was acoustically designed by paul allen and a team of acoustic engineers Mm -hmm. to direct all that crowd noise directly to the field level um 
I am, you know, a broadcaster. I do games for the NFL and for college football. Right. Uh, I've been on NFL fields uh, as an interim coach, um, as a broadcaster since I retired. All the loudest stadiums, I've been at them all. There is no stadium as loud at field level as it is in Seattle. The 12-man definitely makes a difference. There are going to be false starts by offensive tackles for the opposition, at least probably one a game. And we've seen you know games where there have been three or four false starts from those offensive tackles because of that crowd noise. So there's definitely a distinct advantage the 12 provides the Seattle Seahawks. Now, out of all your sacks that you've had, I, 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 there's got to be at least – I know there's got to be at least one that you remember the most out of all your sacks. I, I, I know you can't. I know you. I know people like to say, "Oh, they're the same," but no, there's got to be at least one sack that you remember the most. That it was the most memorable that you thought you would never get off of a quarterback. That had to be one. Uh, I've been pretty lucky to sack some Hall of Fame quarterbacks. You know, I've been lucky to blast some quarterbacks. Um, I knocked uh, Harbaugh's teeth out when he was with the Colts and I was with the Steelers. So, you know, I've definitely inflicted some damage to some quarterbacks in my career. Um, but one of the sacks, probably the sack that stands out the most, we were playing uh, Cleveland in Cleveland as a Seahawk. It was opening game of the season. And they kept trying to put their running back on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first two times, uh, Tim Couch was a quarterback. He was able to get the ball off. So the third time they brought the running back on me, and I decided I'm just going to leap over him. So very Superman-esque <laughs> leap. Um, and Tim Couch had his back to me. So I was able to grab Tim Couch by the, kind of by his jersey. Um, he didn't see me at all. He was focused down the field. So all he knows, he's about to throw a pass. And all of a sudden, I just yank him down by the back of his jersey. But I was able to literally fly over the running back trying to block me. Um, so that probably stands out the most as far as a pretty amazing individual effort to get that sack. Now, since you lived it and you were on the field as a defensive player, is there trash talking on the field between you and the offensive linemen? Oh, of course. Of course. Almost everybody trash talks. I mean, certain quarterbacks, you know, Philip Rivers doesn't, didn't cuss, so it was always that gummit yeah, and all that yeah. stuff. One of my guys, um, yeah. So there's some of those guys. Um, and there's a couple of players who don't say anything. But for the most part, Trash talking is pretty standard on the NFL field. Um, certain players, you know, uh, my agent, um, we, he had a roster of about 60 players. So sometimes I would play against guys who, you know, we shared the same agency and I knew really well. I knew since my rookie year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played against teammates in college. So the trash talk is different depending, do you know the guy? Is he a veteran? Is he a rookie? You know, all those different ways you can kind of know somebody um so the trash talking would change sometimes it got really ugly and nasty and personal other times it was just more you know kind of fun trash talking yeah i gotta ask you about that because you've been through a lot of rivalries especially in your time i mean especially division rivals obviously you were part of the steelers you played against your biggest rivals the uh uh pit on um the cleveland indian uh cleveland brown sorry um, whoever else, I think the ball at the year time when you first there were the Baltimore Colts, right? Yep. Baltimore yeah. Ravens. Yeah. yeah. So you've been through those rivalry games. How, 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 how much of a rivalry was those in, when it came to those games and did you guys honestly really hate each other as, as playing against each other? Cause you guys got to see each other at least twice a year. I know that at, at, at least. 
like it is today? Did you guys honestly like hate each other? Um, the Steelers hate the Ravens. It's a it's such a hatred, but there's also a, a odd level of respect. You know, both teams pride themselves on being incredible foot, uh, physical football teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that game is probably one of the most physical rivalry game I've had in the NFL. That Steeler Ravens game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in the Pittsburgh. Uh, Playing the Houston Oilers, that was a, a pretty tough matchup as well. Uh, Cleveland and Pittsburgh, we wouldn't even fly that game. Those cities are close enough; you can take a bus. Um, so there's a, definitely a, a rivalry there. When I was with the Seahawks, the first, I think, four years I was there, we were in the AFC West. So playing the Ravens, playing the the Broncos, playing the Chargers. Um, so I would say our rival within that division was the Raiders. You know, they were the, the hated team within that division. I make my home in Denver, mm-hmm. so the Bronco game had a certain rivalry aspect, at least for me it did. And those Bronco teams back then with Elway and Terrell Davis and Shannon Sharp, those were really good teams. So not only was it a rival, but I wanted to be able to hold my my head high when I came back to Denver in the offseason because I would see those guys in the grocery store. My kids went to school with some of those uh, players' kids. So I wanted to play well. Even if we didn't win the game, at least I can say I played well. Um, so those rivalry games were always fun to be a part of. You know, I think every player in the NFL would say, I approach every game the same. The rivalry games get a little bit extra. Um, maybe not the preparation is different, but the, the physical nature of the games are sometimes different. Now, obviously, you were old enough because you got drafted in the 90s when they still had the turf fields. Uh, how brutal was it to play on those turf fields compared to actual grass? Um, well, not only in the NFL, but uh, in college. I played in the old oh, yeah, that's right. Big 8. Yep, that's you right. Know? So uh, they Nebraska were turf, turf. Then, yeah. Oklahoma yeah. turf. Missouri turf. Yep. Kansas, Kansas State that's right. turf. Oklahoma State turf. So the only time we played on grass was typically like the bowl game. Mm-hmm. And it was all that old school, uh, hard uh, turf, fuzzy concrete, essentially. You know, I've said if I had played on grass fields my entire life, I might have been able to stretch my career to 18 years, 20 years. Um, yeah, so I, I practiced on turf. I played on turf in college. Um, the old AFC Central division where the Steelers were, uh, the Cleveland Browns had grass. Houston Texans were in the, the Astrodome. Yep. Um, Cincinnati had turf. In Pittsburgh, not only did we have turf, but we shared our turf field with the Pittsburgh Pit Pirates. Uh, Pirates. Yep. Yep. So it had those it had the weird cutouts for the bases. Um, that, that that turf that that covered up the bases was a different age than the regular turf. So you had super fresh turf and super old turf. Um, yeah, that stuff was a hazard. I'm, I'm happy that the NFL and all of football has moved on from that style of uh, field. So let's let's go back to the 07 season when I know the Patriots were projected to do well, but did you guys honestly were projected to go undefeated that year? And then I, I know you guys didn't want to lose in that Super Bowl to Eli, the first one, but I mean, did you guys ultimately predict that you would go undefeated almost that whole year? Um, we knew it was a special group. Um, there were veteran players on the defense. In fact, uh, Bill Belichick got every linebacker who was 10 years and above, 10 years of experience or above in the league, a rocking chair mm-hmm. for the team meetings. Mm-hmm. So I'm in year 15. Junior Seau, I think that point was in year 17 or 18. 
Uh, Teddy Bruschi was maybe in year 10 or 11. Mike Vrabel was in year 10 or 11. Roosevelt Colvin was in year 10. Don Davis was in year 10 or 11. So all these veteran players on the defense, I mean, that's just a, just the linebacker core. Right. Um, you know, Asante Samuels was playing cornerback, you know, an interception artist. Rodney Harrison was yeah. playing safety. Yeah. Uh, Vince Wilfork was playing nose guard. Richard Seymour was playing defensive tackle. So we had studs and horses on defense. We had experience and, and wisdom on defense. And offensively, uh, you had Tom Brady, you had Randy Moss, you had Wes Welker, um, you know, the highest flying pass offense in league history up until that point. Um, so we knew it was a special group. Um, and once we got rolling, yeah, it became pretty clear. The only way we're going to lose a game is if we allow that to happen. If we go out and do what we are supposed to do, what we are capable of doing, we will not lose. Now, what about what happened? What do you what do you think ultimately happened in the Super Bowl? Did you guys get a little bit too cocky? What what happened there? What do you think happened? Do you think just Eli just outsmarted outsmarted you guys? Got lucky? What happened in that game? Tell us about. Take us through that game because I know you guys were projected to win over the Giants. I mean, the Giants had an all-star cast as well, but you guys were ultimately the ones who were definitely favored by a landslide. The last game of the regular season, we played the Giants. The Giants were just beginning to hit their stride. They had injuries earlier in that season. They started playing better late in the season. Um, So we played them. We had nothing to play for other than trying to keep an undefeated record going. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a great opportunity for the Giants to scout us literally on the field and get a chance to get a preview of what that game would end up being um, and to find their advantages. In the end, you know, it was a um, Plexigo Burris matchup against Ellis Hobbs. Uh, Plexigo Burris being a 6'4 receiver, Ellis Hobbs being a 5'9 defensive back. Yeah. It was uh, the pass rush of the Giants versus an offensive line for. Uh, the Patriots, which wasn't um, up to the same level as those pass rushers for the Giants. They had so many guys they could roll in. They could put literally four defensive ends on the field at once. Some of our interior pass blockers just weren't up to that kind of pressure all game long. They were able to affect Tom and the timing of the offense, and they found enough matchups uh, on the other side, defensively, some of those mismatches that they were able to exploit. And that touchdown to Plexico Burris late in the game in the fourth quarter, I mean, you get a 6-4 receiver on a 5-9 cornerback, it's it's a mismatch. Yeah. Um, Eli knew where to put that football. So um, I give the Giants a tip of the cap. They used that experience losing to us in that last game of the season to propel them to beat us in the Super Bowl. Now, is it true about what Bill, Bill, what people say about Belichick and what they, uh, what he did before, like in practices, when um, they get prepared for games, especially in the cold? Uh, you guys practice in the snow. What was? Did he ever tell you guys what the mindset of that was? Practicing in the snow, like he did, and all that, instead of in the facility. Um, Bill was always one to try to replicate game conditions. Uh, one day during training camp, um, every football that is put into play comes out of a bucket of water. Mm-hmm. At some point, we're going to have to play in a wet game. You know, um, if you play the Dolphins early in the season, there's a pretty strong, strong chance there could be a rain shower during that game. Right. So every ball in a, in a, in a 
both practices that day during training camp, it's a wet ball day. We're going to practice throwing wet balls, catching wet balls, intercepting wet balls. We're going to practice sliding in the mud, trying to corral that ball to recover a fumble. We're going to do all of that. If it's going to be snow on the forecast for Sunday, then you should practice in the snow and prepare for that. If it's going to be windy, if there's a windy day during the week, let's take advantage of that. So it's really just, in my mind, it just always made complete sense. It wasn't always fun. Didn't always love it. But when it came game day, if you were already experienced with the difference in footing between a dry field and a snowy field, then you didn't have to spend the first half of the game trying to get your feet underneath you. You already knew what that felt like and how to, you know, uh, um, how to, I suppose, uh, evolve your game and your footwork to be able to deal with that. So now you don't, we obviously already talked about Belichick's personality. You don't have to tell me that. But out of your two other two coaches that are Hall of Fame worthy coaches that you've had and Holmgren and Cower, uh, what what were those two guys like behind the behind the scenes? Because Cowher is totally different than what he is on TV. I'm sure of it. Like when you he coached you and he was a coach. Uh, who'd you who'd you who'd you like playing for? And what were their personalities like? Uh, I really liked Bill Cowher. Bill Cowher, his approach was about the the emotion of the game. Um, we can go out and overwhelm them with how hard we play. We can overwhelm them with our, you know, with our emotion to start the game. If you look at some of those old NFL film clips, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's about to break down the, the kickoff team before they go out there with the first kickoff of the game. He says, let's go out there and punch them in the mouth. We're not going to wait around. We're not going to softly punch and see what they got. No, we're going to go out there and punch them in the mouth from the very first play of the game. Mm-hmm. So that Bill Cowher aggressive mindset um, married perfectly with our defensive style, that Blitzburg style. Well, we were flying around and just knocking the crap out of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Holmgren don't have a whole lot of defense experience with Mike because Mike really focused on the offense. Right. Uh, Mike Holmgren was very professorial. You know, he wore his glasses down on the tip of his nose. He had his play sheet. And it was very much uh, uh, trying to replicate the, the West Coast offense that Bill Walsh ran. Right. So precision, timing execution um that was kind of the hallmarks of his coaching style if we run this play properly no matter what defense they call if we run it properly this play will work so that kind of thing being very slavish upon the play design and the game plan because bill Walsh showed that it worked it worked in green bay with brett Favre. it's going to work here with john kitna or matt hasselback because this play works Versus Bill Belichick, he was always about teaching the players the right play to make. Mm-hmm. You got 11 guys on the field, and there's all these different situations that come up over the course of a ball game. It's a four-minute situation. We want to run the ball and close out the game. It's a two-minute situation on defense where you want to run out the clock and you want to be slow getting off the pile. It's a first and 10 situation to start the game. Most play callers have a play that they like on first and 10 to start the game. So knowing all these situations that they've taught you over the course of the week to be able to go out there and in that situation, each 11 guys be able to make the right play. As I said, it doesn't have to be the spectacular play. It doesn't have to be the athletic play. Just make the right play. And if we get all 11 guys doing that, we'll find a way to win the ball game. Now, I hate to ask you this question because i'm sure you got get asked it all the time when you were a player and you were you were on that team with belichick and brady obviously you know about the ascension between the two and the 
the main, the biggest divorce and who's better and who's whatever, who did, who's better than who. Uh, was there a tension like that between the two in the locker room? Could you tell that at all between them two? I mean, because the divorce happened, I think, years, years ago. It just sped up quickly at the end. But was there any signs of that when you played and for them? Well, not, no, no direct signs with Tom. I think Tom was still very uh, engaged in the whole process of it all. Like I said, it wasn't the most fun place to play. And Tom was there for 20 years. So I think you work any place for 20 years, you got any boss for 20 years, at some point he's going to get on your nerves and you're going to wish for a different situation. Yeah. So I think it was just the, the length of time there. Um, you know, like I said, Teddy Bruschi, I think, played uh, 12 years total. Um, so Teddy walks away before it starts to grind on him and before it starts to wear down on him mentally. That high level of accountability that every team meeting I walk into, I got to be prepared to answer all these questions, all that kind of stuff, it starts to wear on you. Yeah. At some point, you just want to go into a team meeting and just hear what Bill has to say and not have to you know, be on pins and needles. So that environment, that high accountability environment, I think wore Tom down. I, I saw no evidence of that when I was there because Tom was still quite young. Right, um, right. But I, I think any player who did 10, 12, 15 years in that system, at some point, it's just going to be like, oh, my gosh. Let me relax a little bit. But that's certainly not Bill's style. Right. So now let's talk about because, like you said, you're you're in the broadcasting industry. I know right now you're in a radio game, but like you said, you broadcasted a little bit. Now... What do you think about these big-time quarterbacks? Troy just left for ESPN. Uh, you got Romo, who's at CBS, who was the highest until Troy left to go to ESPN, and he took Buck with them. Go figure. I figured that was going to happen. But anyhow, they're together. Uh, I mean, what do you think about all these quarterbacks getting these big-time contracts just for broadcasting games? Wouldn't you like to get a piece of that pie? <laughs> I sure would. I don't think I think anybody would. It is it is such a bananas situation with some of these uh, top broadcasting spots that for Sean McVay, the rumor was he was offered a hundred million dollar deal Ooh. to leave coaching and Ooh. to move into the booth. You can actually make more in the booth than you can as a coach. Ouch. A lot less hours, a lot less stress. Yeah. So uh, I can see why people would be would be willing to entertain those offers. Um, I don't quite get what the networks are trying to do. I don't think anyone tunes in because this certain broadcaster is calling the game. Um, does Al Michaels give it a certain official sense that it's a big game because he's been on Sunday Night Football for so long? Yeah, yeah. of course he does. Yeah. You know, so we, we know if we hear Al Michaels' voice, it's not the early Sunday game with the D team from Fox. You know, the, there's a certain prestige that come with these guys. But if it's if it is the D team on Sunday Night Football, you're not going to tune out. We all love football. We're still going to watch Sunday Night Football. So I'm not I would love to hear what a network executive how they justify paying a million bucks a game to some of these guys. What is the return on that? And does it, do they really think it leads to more viewership? Obviously you can't have somebody awful because people will tune out if somebody's awful. But if you have a pretty good guy and there's lots of guys who are pretty good at broadcasting games, both college and pro, 
if you got a pretty good guy, then the fans aren't going to tune out. So uh, I don't understand the broadcast war that happened this offseason. Uh, hopefully it keeps on going So by the time I'm good enough to be considered for one of those spots, I can make a million bucks a game. Hey, keep um, doing what you're doing, and maybe you will. You never yeah, know. Yeah, you know, who knows? Life is funny that way. But exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But speaking of broadcasters, one unfortunately just passed away. Go figure after his documentary, which I think I think Fox knew something. They're just not going to say anything, but I think they knew something. But that's another story for another day. I think something was already in the works or what happened with Madden, unfortunately, how he passed within not even a week after that was released. So I'm not going to get into it with that. But he was one of the all-time great announcers with Pat Summerall. You played in the 90s and uh, early 2000s before he retired, and you were a part of some of those big games that he called. Now, how how big was it? Because I know you had to see him as players roll up in that, roll up in, because he didn't fly, roll up in that big bus of his, and you guys knew it was a worldwide televised game. Now, Take us, take us, take us through that. Like, how mindset as a player, knowing that he was, and did you have any interactions with him, knowing that you were going to be in a primetime game? Well, when you get uh, a, a game, uh, no matter you know whether it's primetime or just a regular Sunday game, um, certain players are invited to the production meeting. Um, so if you're the, the home team, you typically do that uh, two days before mm-hmm. the game. So that'd be, uh, you know, after Friday practice, you have a production meeting with the broadcast team. If you're the away team, you typically do that on Saturday night once you get to the hotel, mm-hmm. you go into the production meeting. So to walk into the production meeting and there's, you know, um, Pat Summerall and, and John Madden. Are you kidding me? Of course, that's awesome. Of course, that's great. Um, I was lucky enough to be a three-time All-Madden team uh, player selected all the mad team. I got the jacket. I got the sweatshirt. I got all that stuff. Um, so very, you know, very proud of, of that accomplishment. But yeah, to sit down and have a football conversation with John Madden in a production meeting, um, it was really unlike any other because he wasn't, you know, trying to have a broadcast meeting. He was just talking football with you. Right. Now he was going to use that in the course of the broadcast. But he just talked football like a coach. So you would have this very player-coach conversation with this guy. And you knew, you know, if you gave him some good nuggets, that it was going to make its way into the broadcast. So um, always special to be a part of that. Um, and I think as a player, you you recognize that there are really only so many opportunities, unless you're, you know, one of those top-level teams, to play to a, a nationwide audience. Obviously, Monday night. Sunday night, uh, now Thursday night, um, and if you had the you know the John Madden game, which is usually the game of the week, that was also going to be you know broadcast across the country. Um, and if you wanted to make the Pro Bowl, you had to play well on a national game. You know, guys don't make the Pro Bowl if they're kind of always isolated to their local market games. You got to play well when you get your national audience games. You got to make a splash in those games, and typically you need to make a splash in a way that a guy like John Madden says something about you and how well you're playing. So when the fans go to vote for the Pro Bowl, they remember that from that game and vote for you. So now, unfortunately, you didn't get the Super Bowl out of twice. I know you would have liked that. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But out of your career highlights and awards, I'm going to read them to you. Which one would you say is more special to you? 
Uh, first one is two-time first-team All-Pro, three-time Pro Bowl, PFWA All-Rookie Team, 93 Joe Green Great Performance Award, and the last one, Seattle Seahawks 35th Anniversary Team. So out of those that I mentioned, which is most valuable to you? Uh, I think the 35th anniversary team. You know, so that's basically the Seahawks have been around for 35 years as an organization. I made the all-time team. Um, so I, all the great players who have walked through those halls and been a part of that organization, you know, I'm, I'm a part of that special team. So um, I feel very lucky for all of those honors. And for a kid, you know, who just loved playing football growing up to be able to, you know, have that list of accolades, you know, mentioned with your name, it's, it's pretty special and awesome. Now, tell us, tell us about this. Do you still have this uh, place? I'm seeing if this is true. Tell me if it is or not. You operate a business of, for, of, uh, of foreign animals or no, exo- um, that sells non-venomous snakes. Do you still own that? So I, I owned Pro Exotics Reptiles. We produced reptiles for the pet trade. I produced thousands of baby reptiles. I sold them all over the world. Uh, I no longer operate that business. Um, we had a fire at our, at our facility that, you know, I lost a lot of the animals in that fire. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have businesses in the pet trade. Um, I operate a shipping company that helps people move animals uh, around the country, whether they're for sale or families moving or relocating. So I'm still in that pet space. I'm just no longer in the commercial production of producing reptiles. So now let's talk about current NFL since we went on with your uh, career. I got to ask you, I got to ask you, uh, Denver radio guy, Russell Wilson. How well now do you think is the potential in that team to go to the Super Bowl? Because you're in a tough division there. You got my Chargers. You got the Chiefs. We should never still count them out. And you've got the Raiders. They all keep adding up to compete with the Chiefs. I mean, that, that's a hard-ass division, and I never thought it'd be that. Honestly, I thought the Chiefs had it in the, in the books. So, what is the Broncos' chances of winning the Super Bowl this year? Uh, winning the Super Bowl feels like a stretch. You know, um, you got a brand-new head coach in Nathaniel Hackett who's never been a head coach before. you got Russell Wilson trading teams. Um, Russell Wilson, you know, hasn't necessarily played his best football the last couple of years in Seattle. Mm. Um, you got some weapons offensively for the Broncos who – can or could take another step at the same time their production doesn't necessarily match up with their potential Cortland Sutton he's been pretty good but he's not quite an Mm all-star yet Tim Patrick uh pretty good but not an all-star uh Jerry Judy won the first receivers drafted a couple years ago he had zero touchdowns last year um Javante Williams led all running backs with broken tackles last year um, but didn't have a thousand yard season. So there's these guys with potential, but we'll see if they're able to take a step forward. Is Russell Wilson able to recapture some of his better glory days in Seattle? Or is some of the Russell Wilson where we've seen where he's trying to buy too much time, you know, gets a sack that turns a second and eight to now a third and 20. Is, is that more of the Russell Wilson that we see? Nathaniel Hackett, is he actually a great offensive coordinator? 
or did he have Aaron Rodgers who made him look so great? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of question marks and far too many question marks for me to feel comfortable saying, yes, they are a Super Bowl team. Obviously, in the NFL, if you have a franchise quarterback that opens up the Super Bowl window, mm-hmm. but there's a few too many question marks about this Broncos team for me to say they are on the Super Bowl path. And particularly, as you mentioned, because of this division, this division. So the question is, you know, will, will the Broncos offense be a top five offense? Will they even be top three or four within their division? You know, that's a that's a really realistic question. When you look about look at Patrick Mahomes, when you look at Justin Herbert, when you look at Derek Carr, uh, Justin Herbert seems like he's only going to get nothing but better. better yeah. They signed the receivers out there. So his weapons yeah. are back. His coordinator is back his head coach is back plus you got joe you got bosa and khalil mack yep. coming on you know so you got yep. that coming from the charges yep. patrick mahomes you can't count him out andy reed is certainly going to be very creative with the play calling eric mm-hmm. enemy those guys out there um you know they lost tyree kill but they're going to replace that with lots of draft picks they got a couple other receivers who can stretch the field, so you can't count them out. And I think they've beaten the Broncos 12 or 13 times in a row. In a row, yes. Yeah. yeah. The Raiders got Josh McDaniels, who certainly will have learned a lot between his first coaching gig with the Broncos and now as the coach of the Raiders. Uh, I think he's met, he's learned a lot in his time with New England as well, so he's going to walk into this second head coaching opportunity far better than he did the first time. He's going to move Derek Carr's game forward. They've got uh, Darren Waller, perhaps the most difficult tight end matchup outside of Travis Kelsey in the league. Oh, and then you added Devontae Adams, the best receiver yeah, in the league. And you already got a good running back mm-hmm. who runs hard. So there's this division is going to be very difficult. And familiarity, because he played with him in college. I mean, that yes. adds, adds uh, fuel to the fire right there. Right. So, so this division is going to be incredibly tough. Um, so, yes, the Broncos have improved over last year. But as I always say on my radio show, your improvement is never in a vacuum. Your improvement is rated against the teams in your division because in order to make the playoffs, not get in as a wild card, but to make the playoffs, you got to win your division. So yeah. this division is stacked from top to bottom with good quarterbacks, great pass rushers and offensive weapons so the broncos have their work cut out for them to try to move up in this division so would you say by far the best division in football besides the let's say the afc north i think um, that's a tough one i think on paper it is the best division in football i think it's the best division in football um yeah, the AFC North is there's there's a lot to be said there, but this division, um, until you until you you know beat the champ and the champ is the Chiefs right now, I got to roll with this division. I, I I have to agree with you on that one. So now let's talk about your two former teams, the Seahawks and Steelers. What in the blue hell are both of them doing? I mean, you you got question marks at quarterback. Is Trubisky really the answer? I think not because he flunked over in freaking Chicago. You look how that turned out. And you got Drew Locke. Oh, God, you know how that is, unfortunately. You guys wanted to get rid of him. <laughs> it, I mean, what what is the ultimate answer for those two teams? What are they going to do, and what do they need to do to get back to their championship roots? 
Uh, I don't think either one of those quarterbacks are starting quarterbacks for them in 2023. Um, they're, they'll serve as a bridge. They'll serve as a, a, a placeholder while they work on their quarterback plan. I think it's pretty clear around the NFL that without a quarterback, you don't have a shot. His value began to slide down. Right. They're able to get a ton of draft capital from the Broncos. Um, so from a Seahawks perspective and a Pete Carroll perspective, to hit the restart button with all that draft capital makes sense. Drew Locke can be a Band-Aid to get them through. Um, but in the end, Drew Locke won't be the starter in 2023. They'll go in a different direction. They'll either try to get a different franchise quarterback or they'll find a guy in the draft. Pittsburgh Steelers, same kind of thing. Mike Tomlin, 15 years, no losing seasons. The consistency and the track record there is absolutely amazing. I don't think they go deep in the playoffs with uh, with Mr. Trubisky. Um, I think that defense, that defensive style, um, Keith Butler, defensive coordinator, retired. So now they got to kind of break in a new play caller over there. But that defensive style is essentially just a, you know, a continued evolution of the same defense that I played in right. back in, you know, 92 and 93. Right. So um, they have still going to be good. T.J. Watt, last time I checked, is a really, really good player. Yep, um, they got some other really, really good players. Cam Hayward up front for them. So they got enough horses to win games. Um, I don't know if their offense can take them deep in the playoffs, but they'll certainly have a winning record. Now, another issue is in Cleveland with the quarterbacking up there. You got now Deshaun in Cleveland. Where does make Baker Mayfield fit in all this? Because out of those two teams that we just talked about, they're in a running for him. So where the hell do you see him going? You know, I'm not sure. I don't have a destination in mind um, where he's going to go. I have to imagine they've got to get this taken care of fairly quickly um, because it's going to be in that situation where you start to have OTAs and mini camps, and it's a distraction because he doesn't even get invited. You don't want him even to participate because you don't want him to get hurt and lessen his trade value for you. So at some point, sooner than later, they've got to make a move there. Um, I think either one of those teams would certainly be interested considering their other options at quarterback. Um, but Baker Mayfield needs to go on a bit of a career rehab at this point. You know, he's got to get his body right this offseason to give himself the best chance for success. Yeah. Um, his play has declined a little bit um, last year versus two years ago. So he's got to get himself in a situation where I think he can find some consistency. Because you keep turning over coordinators, you keep pressing, you end up with the results that he had this year where he just didn't look very accurate. He looked like he was overthrowing the ball, didn't look very comfortable within the offense, and he wasn't healthy. So um, it's going to be an interesting year for him. If, number one, if he gets an opportunity to be a starter. But number two, how does he go about kind of rehabbing his career and press and reset and getting himself an opportunity to be someone's franchise quarterback in 2023? Now, a lot of people are saying he's a bust as a number one overall. I think it's too early for that. What do you, what do you, what's your take on that? How do you see him as? You know, this year is a difficult one to evaluate because he was banged up all year and the injuries started to stack up on him. Um, a bust is tricky. Um, is he ever going to be the, the level of a, an all time great? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't see the, the, the processing speed to, to make that happen. To be a Drew Brees, an Aaron Rodgers, a Tom Brady, a Peyton Manning, I don't see the ability to, to process. But if you are a team that has a decent defense and you run the ball well and he can stay healthy, can he take you deep in the playoffs? Absolutely, he can. Um, but, you know, Cincinnati clearly has the best quarterback 
in that division at this point. Right. So, so uh, if Baker Mayfield were to come, go to the Steelers, he still would be looking up at Joe Burrow. Uh, yeah. Joe Burrow is the cream of the crop in that division as far as quarterbacks go. He passed uh, Lamar Jackson. Um, Steelers, obviously, with uh, Mitch Trubisky. So uh, it's all about Cincinnati right now. Now, another quarterback I I want to ask you about too, because I'm I'm iffy about. I know he I know I saw his career in Miami. Did nothing. He didn't do any. He didn't have the players to help him uh, until he got to Tennessee, and he had the players to help him. And you see the results of what he's done. Tannehill. Can Tannehill be the answer in Tennessee? I say no. Because if the answer, well, I suppose the, if the question is, can Tannehill take him to the Super Bowl, then the answer is no. He's not the answer. Um, their offense is based on the running game. It's based on play-action pass. Mm-hmm. So if that running game is clicking, and with Derrick Henry, it, it tends to. You know, not every run is a, is a home run. You know, there's a lot of, you know, negative yard plays or even some zero game plays. But eventually, as a big man running, somebody's going to make a mistake and he's going to break attack when he's off to the races. But it's based on the running game being successful. Therefore, Tannehill can play action pass. Um, They have one of the most successful play action pass rates and completion rates in all of football. But once that running game slows down, it's very difficult for Tannehill to lead a regular, ordinary passing attack at a very high level. And once you get into the playoffs, guess what? That's where all the good teams are. So the chances are your run game is going to be slowed down in the playoffs because you're going to be playing good defenses. You may be playing in bad weather. You may be playing on a muddy field. So all those things can slow a run game down and make it less efficient. So for Tannehill to be successful in the regular season and keep that level of success throughout the playoffs, he's just so dependent upon that other part of the offense doing well, he can't go out there and do it all on his own. Now, another division that rivals, I think, the AFC West is the NFC West with the 49ers, Rams, and, uh, let's see, the Cardinals. Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to say Seattle because they're pretty much in rebuild. Those three teams, there's still questions with Jimmy Garoppolo. Are they going to trade him? Are they going to stay with Lance? Uh, of course, you got Kyler Murray, Murray who's upset with the team. I don't know why, but still he's upset with the team after they've done everything for him. And you've got, of course, Stafford winning a Super Bowl with McVay this year. How well do you see that division panning out? Um, Do you see Kyler being happy ultimately in Arizona, or do you see him going to baseball? And what about the whole Jimmy G and Trey Lance situation? Where do you see that one going? Uh, Arizona... um Kyler Murray is not showing the kind of maturity I would want from my franchise quarterback. Um, you know, deleting your social media and all that kind of stuff and taking all that was childish. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's that's stuff that wide receivers do. Let those guys be those guys. You are the franchise quarterback. And, you know, real bad boys move in silence. If you want a contract extension or negotiation, go to the clubs, you know, privately. Don't make this a public thing. Don't create that kind of tension between you and the team. That's not how franchise quarterbacks get things done. Right. So the immaturity of Kyler Murray is a little disappointing. Um, 
and then the play of Kyler Murray. Um, obviously off to a hot start last year, and then things just fell apart. Um, I've got a house in Arizona. I split time between Arizona and Colorado. Um, so I, I've, I've called a number of uh, Cardinals games. Uh, you know, I certainly yeah, stay on, on top of those that team, and yeah. um, they fell apart late in the season. Um, Kyler Murray is going to have 20 good passes, and he's also going to have six or seven completely head-scratching plays during the course of the ballgame. And you're like, what are you doing, man? So until he, I think he matures as a franchise quarterback and matures as a player, they're always going to be kind of good but not good enough. Um, San Francisco, they got to get that quarterback thing figured out. Kyle's one of the best coaches in the league, in my opinion. Um, that defensive style that they play, they've got some horses on defense. Um, Fred Warner at uh, linebacker, Eric Armstead up front. Um, Bosa on the edge. They got some 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 players out there. They got to figure out this quarterback thing. Even if it's not uh, on the field difference, it makes a difference in the locker room. Exactly. Yeah. That's if, if you if the team knows mm-hmm. who the man is, who to look to, who do we hitch our wagons to, who do we put all our trust in, it just makes that whole process, the off season, the install, the playbook, all the OTAs. It just makes that a much cleaner process rather than. Everyone whispering behind the scenes, oh, man, Trey had a good practice. Oh, man, Jimmy G looked good. You start to divide the team a little bit when you allow that to go on for too long. Um, And then with the Rams, um, Sean McVay, one of the most creative play callers in all the NFL, Uh, Matt Stafford certainly went through some learning curves early in the season, got better as the season went along, kind of similar to Tom Brady two years ago, where it took Tom Brady pretty much the entire season to gain a really good sense of comfort with what Bruce Arians was trying to do. Sean McVay and Matt Stafford took the whole season to get that going. But when you start playing your best football late in the season, it gives you a chance to go on a great late season run, which is what they did. Aaron Donald is the absolute best player in all of football. Um, So they've got – receivers they got defensive backs they got the best linemen in all the game they got a great quarterback and they got a competent coach uh it's hard to believe that they're not going to be at the top of that division again so i promise this i got two more questions and that's it and then we'll call it we'll call it all right because <laughs> i know it's getting late over here and i know it's getting late over there too even though it's three hours different but it's still getting late over there okay so two more quarterbacks i want to talk to you about because uh, it's been a quarterback offseason heavily heavily Matt Ryan, Carson Wentz, both get traded to different teams. Uh, Carson goes to the Commanders, and Wentz goes – no, sorry. Matt Ryan goes over to the Colts where Wentz was. How do you see those quarterbacks faring, and how do you see them regaining their careers? Because they both went downhill quickly – especially Matt Ryan's after that Super Bowl collapse. So where do you see them, and can can Wentz be the leader that a lot of people are saying he's not? Matt Ryan to uh, the Colts. Colts got best running back in the NFL, Jonathan Taylor. Um, I've called a couple of Colts games. I called Wisconsin games when he was there. Um, dynamic running back. So to have Matt Ryan, to give Matt Ryan that kind of running game, Matt Ryan is one of the more accurate quarterbacks in the league. Um, they've got some uh, studs up front on the offensive line. Quentin Nelson, that defense is really good. DeForest Buckner, uh, Darius Leonard, they got some studs over there. So I think Matt Ryan takes him to the next level. Carson Wentz was the biggest issue for the Colts last year. The inconsistency, the inconsistent play. Um, the Washington Commanders are in that position with so many other teams in the league with 
We hope this guy can be okay for us. That's where Ron Rivera is. He's in that hope situation. Carson Wentz has the talent, but can he play to his talent level? Can he play consistent enough? I don't think there's enough of a winning culture with the commanders just yet to have Carson Wentz walk into and suddenly be a better team. Um, so the Carson Wentz experiment in Philadelphia had a hot start, fell apart. Colts did okay, fell apart. Uh, I think we're going to see a similar thing in Washington. There's just not enough consistency and processing from Carson Wentz to take them to a division title. And now, <clears throat> and now final question is, I ask this to everybody, two-part question. Uh, obviously, you said you were a coach and you did win a Super Bowl, but it wasn't at the pro level. Uh, what did you tell those, I think you said kids, correct? Pop Warner, yes. Yeah. So, what, so what, what would you say to the kids that want to get to your level of the NFL and college someday, whatever, playing pro, what would you tell them? Well, what did you tell them? And the second part is define your career in one word. All right. Uh, my conversations with kids is, you know, there, there are so many things that are outside of your control to get to, to this level. But the game of football, in my opinion, is the most extraordinary of all the games because of the lessons that it teaches you, lessons that are applicable in all of your life. Who doesn't like someone who works hard, someone who's mentally and physically tough, someone who works well with others, someone who's willing to sacrifice their own glory for the glory of the team? Mm -hmm. So those lessons that you learn in football, you may not be on. You may not be able to play football forever. Heck, I played a long time. And I, I made it till I was 38 years old, but I got to, you know, hopefully another 50 years to live. So these lessons that you learn in the game. They last the rest of your life. I have leaned upon those lessons in almost everything that I've done in my family, in my marriage, with my businesses. I lean upon those very lessons because they are not just football lessons. They are life lessons. So who knows how long your time on the field is going to go. But I want you all, speaking to these kids, um, to walk away with these incredible lessons that the game teaches you. Football is, is in some ways like a like a, a sped up version of life. You prepare all week long for this one moment to go out there and do it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we prepare for various things in our life, events in our lives, and then we go out there and we do them. And the more preparation we put into this, the better our results are going to be. You know, um, you're going to get married. It's more than just the show of the marriage. It's the, the building of the relationship. So then you can have that go on for a long time. So all these things that we learn on the football field, um, that's what I want kids to walk away from. Not that they're going to be in the NFL because are you going to be big enough? Are you, you know, going to be fast enough? Some of us are just never going to make the physical prerequisites to be in the NFL. Right. But you can still take these lessons that we all learn and put them into action in your life. And uh, your career in one word. <clears throat> can I go with two words? That's fine. Yes, you can Hard do that. work. Hard work. There you go. There you go. And <clears throat> this was the bonus last one. Uh, obviously, since you're doing your show in Denver, uh, who do you see Denver drafting to help improve the team this year? Their first pick is the 64th pick. They've got uh, five picks in the first – 120 picks, I believe. They gave up the first and second round pick to get Russell Wilson. Mm -hmm. um, so is 
George Payton, the GM, going to bundle some of those later picks to try to slide up. Um, they still got a couple positions they need to shore up. This draft is deep in edge players, um, so they got to shore up their their pass rush. Um, so I'm thinking they may go with a an edge guy in, in that 64th pick range. Um, that's probably the most likely slot. Um, there is a, there's some depth in cornerbacks in this draft. That's another position where they need some depth. Um, offensive tackle, right right tackle. Uh, there's three or four guys in the draft who I think are the best players. Everyone else behind that is significantly worse. Um, so if one of those top four tackles, right tackle, slide to the Broncos at 64, maybe they go there. So I'm thinking, again, tackle, edge, or cornerback. Tackle being the most unlikely because there's not as much depth in this draft at that position. I think edge is probably where it ends up going. And off subject, I think you, I think uh, your station, isn't that the one you're part of with Mark Schiller? If you know Mark Schiller over there. Oh, I know Mark Schleff really well. He does the morning show. My show comes on after his. Yes. I've been trying to get a hold of him. He's hard to get a hold of. Mark's a very, very busy man. No doubt about it. Without a doubt. I've been trying to get him to come on here. <laughs> right on. Well, this was fun, man. Was I appreciate fun. it. Thank definitely, you. Definitely. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I'll send you the episode. So whenever you decide, you can post them at the same time because yeah, I gave you the other link. So yep. yeah, so it was fun. Uh, this concludes episode 96 with Chad Brown, former NFL uh, player and radio guy for 104.3 The Fan, it looks like, correct? Yep, 104.3 The Fan, correct. So um, is there anything else you want to add, like how people can follow you or listen to you or promote your station in any way? Before yeah, you can follow off? me on Twitter at uh, Chad Brown 94 Chad Brown 94 for my Twitter handle. Um, you want to listen to the daily radio show. My partner is Nate Jackson, former NFL wide receiver. We had a lot of fun on the show. Music is a big part of our show. You can listen to us at uh, go to 1043thefan.com. You can, pop, you can listen to the show whenever you want or listen to it live. And then uh, during the season, I call games with Compass Media, which is a nationwide radio outfit. Uh, so every weekend during football season, I'm calling a college or an NFL game. Perfect. Awesome. Right on. Right on. Take Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right, here. You bye have bye. a good night. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. This concludes episode number 96 with Chad Brown, former NFL player, current radio guy for 104.3 The Fan now in Denver, also analyst. <clears throat> but um, until then, have a good night. Uh, follow us on YouTube, Coffee Time with Byron, also on Spotify, Google, Anchor, all the streaming, podcast streaming apps, you know it. Even on now, Amazon Music. So hang in there, tune in, appreciate it, give us a follow. But until then, have a good night, take care.